I want to talk about a complete savior, a complete savior. And I'm going to give you really eight views that capture the greatness of God and our salvation. And how am I going to go about it? Well, let's start with this thought. If I were preaching on the Proverbs, you would notice that there is a design, obviously by the Lord, that is meant to give you practical wisdom for everyday decisions, everyday life choices, the book of Proverbs. I mean, it addresses things about your money and how it should be used, uh, parenting, responding to parents, about avoiding adultery, about treating your neighbor, avoiding temptation, uh, issues of anger, issues of laziness, and the list goes on throughout the Proverbs because it's giving us wisdom, and literally that word means... Excuse me. The word means um, to give one skill. So it is the idea of having skill for life. And this message um, by design is different. Uh, This message has a great deal of application, but it's of a different nature. Uh, I'm hoping that this message will have an effect in your mind and cause you to think greater thoughts about God, about the Lord and about his greatness. The application is trust and believe, trust and belief. Yet it's very connected to what I said about the Proverbs and these everyday life decisions. It's not um, disassociated from that at all. None of scripture is. If we were to look at a scripture that talks only about God's sovereignty and a, a scripture that talks about maybe as we've discussed recently, the immutability of God, that has some... Um, implication for things about how we spend money and how we live life, everyday life. Why? Because when we think about God and his greatness, it should really excel you or it should motivate you to make those decisions more properly. That is, you should think to yourself, if God is so great, then when it comes to my money, how should I respond? If God is so great, When it comes to temptation, how should I resist it? If God is so great, in which he is, then how should I treat my neighbor? If God is great, then how should I parent? If God is great, then how should I respond to rebuke or to counsel? And those that are telling me that maybe that isn't the best decision to make in life, if God is great. But we all must believe that God is great. Should we not believe that? He is a great God. And then you are motivated because you realize Since God is a great God, then he, in fact, deserves my best. I must be submitted to this God. So it's a message that I hope is going to stimulate your appreciation for your salvation all the more. Why? Because when we see the greatness of God and we consider the sufficiency of what he has done for us, we should stand in awe of his person. And if we stand in awe of his person, I believe that we will stand in awe of the gift from that person. Think about it. It's only uh, reasonable. Um, if someone that you highly respect, that you have a great deal of affection for, if they give you something, it's very different than a common person off the street that may give you the same thing. Um, we often at times keep things maybe longer than we should because they have sentimental value, do we not? And some of those can be good. There's something that I have. It's in my study at home. It comes from my dad when he was actually on leave and he was in, um, he was in Japan and he picked it up in Tokyo. 
and it and some of it's a bit tattered and but I can look at it and it brings about this memory. Why? Because it comes from my dad. But if I didn't respect my dad or if I didn't love my dad and if I most definitely if I've never knew him, I, uh, who needs this? It's taking up space. And you would discard it most likely. But no, because I respected him and I loved him, then anything from him has a special place in my heart. And so when we have a great respect and love and awe for God, anything from him should have a special place in our what? In our heart. Do you agree with me? She says, of course, amen. (laughs) A confident building statement there. (laughs) You know, perhaps life for you could be overwhelming even right now. And we all know sometimes in church life, we come and someone asks us a question, how life is going, and we tend to say what to them? Oh, it's fine. And you realize here I am in church and I've just lied (laughs) because life is not fine right now. It's very difficult right now. It's hard right now. And you may be in that stage in life even now. Maybe your faith is tested right now. Maybe life is shaken a little bit right now. But in these passages that we're going to look at, there's a great deal of hope because they're pregnant with hope and strength for that person who is going through any sort of difficulty and they're seeking comfort and peace of mind. And that comfort and peace of mind only comes from the Lord. And perhaps you're here today And this message, I pray, will open your eyes because you need to surrender your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. You really don't know him. You come and you like Grace Community Church and you like Anchored, perhaps, and you like the people around you and you like the person next to you and the one behind you and even in front of you. But you don't know the Lord. You've yet to be really forgiven of your sins. And if you were to pass into eternity right now, As we just saying, there is no living hope for you. Life is over, and that's all there is. See, when we look at this sufficient Savior, this great God, I'm praying that it will stimulate you to say, oh, what a wonderful Savior I serve. This view of God that we see in Isaiah, in in one sense, is like no other. There's a a very loftiness of uh, God when we look at the book of Isaiah. And I do love this book. And this is really a precursor to our series that we're going to start, which will be Isaiah 40 to 48, uh, perhaps in a month or so. And I was just talking to someone about some translation issues in the Gospel of John, which I think the New Legacy Standard Bible really got it right. And we were discussing that. And I said, I love the gospel of John and I love the book of Isaiah. And if I were on a desert island anywhere and someone said to me, you can only have two books of the Bible, what would they be? And it would be those two. And even if I studied them for the rest of my life, I would still feel like, ah, there's so much more. There's so much more that I can discover because when we, whenever we look at anything that has to do with God, We can never come to the end of our life and say, oh, I've figured it all out. I know all there is to know about an infinite being. (laughs) No, not at all. This book is written that it might give hope to those who are captive people. And then it will demonstrate God's divine design where he is going to judge the nations. The nations have rebelled against God and he is going to say, here is judgment that's coming. We see God's sovereign plan to deliver these people and to restore them to these spiritual blessings 
that were theirs. We also see what God is going to bring about to even the consummation of the ages itself, where there's going to come a time where the lion will lie down with the lamb and a child can put their hand in the snake's um, hiding place in it and he not be bitten by it. That time is going to come. And some of us look around and we see the news around us and we we're hoping that that time would come right now. Horrible things that we can read just every day. And at times I think we should not spend as much time as perhaps we do and more time in this book than we do in others. And in Isaiah, we see in chapters 1 to 39, there's a breach of covenant. Israel has breached the covenant. The nations have breached the covenant to see God as the one who is worthy of covenant faithfulness. And then we'll see in Isaiah 40 to 66, here is God's response to his people who have breached this covenant, but he is going to be faithful and he will ultimately restore them. And even the nations that have rebelled against God, he is going to say, even for you, my salvation will go forth. And then we also see that there is a second exodus that's going to take place under Cyrus the Persian. And at times throughout Isaiah, Cyrus, even this one who doesn't know the Lord, as we might think of knowing the Lord, he still sees Cyrus as his servant because God is going to use him. And that's something we should understand just for a brief moment. When we think about God's sovereignty, when God is saying to someone that he is going to use an individual, this person is his servant, it doesn't mean that they have a, an intimate uh, relationship with God or even one of salvation, but it simply means that the king's heart is in the hand of whom? Is in the Lord's, and I turn it whichever way that I please, Proverbs 21. So in this view, and it is a lot, we're going to look at a lot of scriptures, and you might even subtitle it uh, a mountain view of a sufficient savior, a mountaintop view of a sufficient savior. And there are a number of places that I've been, and I love to get in, and I hope to, when I'm fully recovered, to get out and start running and, and climbing again. But I've been up to Mount Whitney, wonderful view, as you can see the continental divide. I've been in the Rockies, and just absolutely beautiful views. Fortunate to be in the Swiss Alps, and absolutely wonderful views that you can have as you're there, thousands of feet, and you're looking down. I mean, 10,000, um, been up to what do you think it must be 12.5. That's a lot. How many of you have ever been to the Grand Canyon? And what a view that is. Remember the first time you saw it? Because you just thought, oh, you saw it as a kid, maybe on National Geographic, and then you walk out and you say, oh my, what a view. I could stay here forever. And I've been to Yosemite and say, oh my, what a view. And when we think about God and who he is, and we get this high view of God, which we should have, because a high view of God is the only way that we're going to get through the issues of life. It is really unfortunate when people are in places that don't preach a high view of God. Where do you go? Where's the refuge in a God that is ordinary? Where's the refuge in a God that is not sovereign and, and providential? Where's the refuge in a God that is not immutable and infinite? Where's the refuge in a God that is not holy and righteous and good? Oh my, where would you go? Well, you go to self. And, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, boy. 
Boy, that's not a good option, is it? Do any of you think that that's a good option? Any self-votes here? No. Absolutely. But that's what we all were before we came to the Lord, were we not? And where did that take us? Oh, and the stories that could be told right now. So let's get into it. These seven views, these mountaintop experiences. And mountaintop experiences are great as long as they have an effect on us and draw us closer to the Lord, number one. And they all start this way, stand in awe. Number one, stand in awe of an intimate Savior. Stand in awe of an intimate Savior. I told you we're going to look at a number of texts. Let's start in Isaiah 41. Isaiah 41, and then verse 10. Um, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, uh, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. 42 and 6 tells us what? It says, I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people and a light to the nation. So God speaks to his people. And beginning in chapter 40, he calls out comfort to his people. You have rejected me, but I will not ultimately reject you. And notice the language in 41.10. I am your God. I will strengthen. I will help. I will uphold. Notice 42.6. What does he say there? I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you. It is God's sovereign intimacy being demonstrated to a people who are undeserving. And this is something we should appreciate because unlike the gods of the land, um, these gods of the land were distant and they were indifferent to their worshipers. But Yahweh is not that way. This covenant keeping God is a God that seeks intimacy with his people. And as I made this announcement about um, our first grandchild, um, surely uh, we want to, we look toward to the day when he will take his first step. But when a child is taking their first step, which we did with all of our kids before, you have to hold them by what? By the hand. And you guide them along, do you not? And you see them taking those little steps and maybe they stumble a little bit. And what do you have to do? Whoops, you catch them, do you not? And it's this imagery that God has given us. I will hold you by the hand. I'm an intimate God. But the problem with some of us is that we think that we can walk at a pace that's stronger and different than what God is saying. Maintain a childlike attitude before this great God. Amen. Allow him to take you by the hand. The Psalms give us a picture of intimacy as well. Let's look at some of these Psalms. Psalm 18, 35, you have also given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand upholds me. And I love this portion of the Psalm. And it says, and your gentleness makes me great. Because one might think if he's talking about greatness here, and it could have been stated in one way it's stated elsewhere, but one might expect, and your great almighty sovereign hand makes me great. Your omnipotence makes me great. He says, your gentleness makes me great. Why? Because in gentleness, it's a statement that God is engaging with the psalmist and saying, I'm coming alongside of you as a son from a father. Notice verse 36. 
And what does he say here? You enlarge my steps under me and my feet have not slipped because you're engaged with me. Look at Psalm 37, Psalm 37 and 24. It says, when he falls, he will not be hurled headlong. Who is this? Who is referring to the righteous man? Because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. 63, 8. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Psalm 73, remember Psalm 73, Asaph, is he, he looks at life and he says, God, I look at life and one, essentially, I'm wondering why have I maintained this righteous attitude because I look around and wicked men, they, they're living life and life for them is full. There's a jealousy that I have and he says, but I came to my senses and he realizes this. He says, nevertheless, I am continually with you You have taken hold of my right hand intimacy. From the moment of your spiritual birth, God is guiding us intimately. He is caring for us. He is watching over us. And notice this, the psalmist here has a sense of consternation in Psalm 77.10 because he makes this statement. Then I said, it is my grief that the right hand of the most high has changed. Because here the psalmist realizes when God is no longer with me, I am left to my own. If I'm left to my own, I have no power over my enemies. I have no power over these enemies and over the nations. But he's not. Psalm 139.10, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. Our God is an intimate God. He is a complete Savior a sufficient savior. He is unlike the gods of the lands. Number two, stand in awe of an exclusive savior, of an exclusive savior. I mentioned this to you last week when we looked at Jesus in the gospel of John and the relationship of John to Isaiah. And it's really a relationship to John to Isaiah and Isaiah to Exodus. And we mentioned the great I am's that are in John. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the vine. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And these thoughts really are birthed from the great statement in Exodus, I am the great I am. And they're also birthed from the statements that we see in Isaiah, the I am statements there. Let's look at some of them. An exclusive Savior, Isaiah 40, verse 18. 40, verse 18 And to whom then will you liken me? Or what likeness will you compare me? And of course, here he's saying, why would you compare me to some of these vain idols that you craft even with your hands? Why would you even dare to think that I'm likened something that you can take from a piece of wood that you're using to cook a meal, and then you bow down to it and worship? I'm an exclusive and unique Savior. Stand in awe of me. Then notice 40 verse 25, and it says here, to whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. And of course, the statement rhetorical and the answer is there is none that is the equal of God. Look at 43 verse. um, Let's start. Note verse three first. 43, three. And it says here, for I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your savior, I've given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place. And then go to verse 10. Notice what he says there. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, 
And he says, and understand that I am he before there was no God formed and there will be none after me. I, even I am the Lord. And there is no, what does he say in verse 11? No savior besides me, Israel. You are foolish to think that the gods of the land can save you. Israel, you're foolish to think that you can craft a God out of stone and out of wood and bow down before it. There is no other savior. The same thing is true in Isaiah 45, 21 to 25. He says there in verse 21, there is no God, there is none except me, a righteous God and a savior. Turn to me, he says in verse 22, and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I'm God and there is no other. And this is this statement here is, remember what I said, 1 to 39, there's a breach of covenant. Israel, you have breached the covenant. The nations have breached the covenant. You should all be worshiping me. And now we begin to see what God is going to restore. He indicts, but yet he's going to restore. And there's a call that goes into all the land. Be saved by me. You see the same thought. We won't go there in Isaiah 49, 26 and 60, verse 16. Jesus Christ did the same thing in one sense. Um, in Isaiah, Yahweh is saying, I am an exclusive savior. There is no other. I'm a righteous and good savior. And Jesus Christ came to the earth. And in fact, he said, there is what sort of gate? What gate is there? A narrow great gate. But there is a broad road which men, men take, and that will lead one to destruction. And this is why Jesus Christ said exclusively, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. It's consistent with the thoughts that we find here in Isaiah. And even the consistency of those thoughts is really a statement that what Yahweh is saying in Isaiah is simply what the Son would say in John and throughout the Gospels, because they're one and the same. I mean, people search many paths, do they not? Philosophies, an array of lifestyles that they think will meet their spiritual needs, but in the end, it's all the same. It's a spiritual dead end. Men and women want eternal life, but they simply don't want it on God's terms. Men are forever looking for that uh, fountain of youth. We try to extend our lives here as long as we possibly can. Do all that we possibly can to extend life here. But what does it matter to extend life here as Jesus Christ would say, but yet you, your soul is damned. What does it matter to have the kingdoms of this world? What does it matter to have houses and servants and the things of this world, but yet your soul is required of you? A third place of awe is this. Stand in awe of a protecting Savior. A protecting Savior. If we go back again, the statement from Isaiah 41, we looked at it before briefly. I am the Lord your God, verse 13, who upholds you, do not fear. Verse 14, do not fear, I will help you. And it's interesting that Israel is also referred to, he says, you worm. Why why does he refer to Israel as a worm? 
It's this idea of making a statement that you have no inherent power. There's nothing you can do apart from me to deliver yourself. Recognize that. I think all of us at some point in time when it comes to our Christian testimony, there must be a a common thread. And that common thread is this. We all come to grips that we cannot save ourselves. If I were to stop right now and to say, for those of you that really know the Lord, tell me your Christian testimony. At some point in time, you may articulate it differently, but there is a common thread. You realize I could not save myself. I tried. And how is it that people try today? I attended church. I tried. I really tried to reform my life. I tried to live by the standards that I knew were true. Maybe it's things that I was taught since I was a child. I tried. And at the end of that vain attempt to satisfy a God that requires absolute um, perfection, we must come to grips that we need divine intervention. We need the Lord. He is a protecting Savior. And he says here, do not fear, do not fear. I mentioned it before, you know, surely you've maybe in your own study have heard someone else mention it as well. If we were to go through the Bible and you were to simply note the occurrences of do not fear, do not be afraid, you would realize this, that it is the most frequent command in all of Scripture. Why? Because when we fear, we're simply saying, I do not trust. When I fear, I don't trust. So it's a statement in the positive when, we, when it says, do not fear, what God is says, trust me, trust me, trust me. And trust is the idea that we come to grips, that we need something outside of ourselves to help us to intervene. And this is spiritual intervention. God is a protecting Savior. Number four, a fourth reason to stand in awe is this. Stand in awe of a sovereign Savior, a sovereign Savior. Look at Isaiah 45, a sovereign Savior. What is sovereignty? Briefly, it is God's absolute ability to do as he pleases. It is God's absolute right to do as he pleases. And it is God's absolute desire to do as he pleases. How a sovereign God then uses providence. That is how God uses here, all these contingencies in life. And he can, in his sovereign power, make them all work together for one ultimate purpose to glorify him. That's an amazing thing. And just that in yourself should make you want to tremble. That how is it that God can take every event, every event that's recognized in this room and somehow say it is an absolute sovereign control. Everything is moving according to my redemptive plan in this very moment. How is it that a person meets another individual and you say, oh, what chance that I met you here? No, not at all. Isn't it lucky that this happened this way? No, not at all. It is a sovereign God moving your life along. An amazing thing. And so God is sovereign in what way? Well, he's sovereign and even using Cyrus, his servant. Notice what he says. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I've taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. So what is God saying? So God takes Cyrus, the Persian. I'm going to take you by the hand and I'm going to go throughout the nations and you will shatter them. You will punish them for me. And we will eventually get to 
45 when we start our, our study. But notice, if you will, just so briefly, he says, and to loose the loins of kings. Uh, and what he's saying is a, it's a beautiful picture culturally. So we think about a, a, a person of royalty having something tied around their loins. And it was a statement. And what he's saying, you would go to kings and you would loosen it to say, now you are a person that is not royalty anymore. Be subject to me. It's like if you've seen someone, oh, perhaps this may help by way of an illustration. Um, we'll go into the realm of athletics, if you will. And the realm of athletics, uh, particularly when it comes to boxing, martial arts, that sort of thing. Uh, especially in boxing, they're given a big belt. You've ever seen these before? Uh, they're just absolutely, what's the word I'm looking for? Gaudy. But... Um, <laughs> <laughs> but represented behind the godliness is millions of dollars. So take the godliness and run, right? So this huge belt. And, they were, and they, maybe before the fight, they're holding up. Maybe they have both belts and they're holding up their belts and it's around them. And it's saying, I am the champion. And if they lose, guess what? You have to give up the belt. And this idea, he's going to loose their loins so the, the king would have had around their loins something that represented, I am royalty. And so he's saying, Cyrus, you'll go about, and to that king, take it from his loins. And from that king, take it from his loins. Because there's what, but one king in the universe, and that is Yahweh. See, that's sovereignty. Because you say, wait a minute, but isn't it just Cyrus who wanted to be a world conqueror? Yes. Isn't it God who was using him? Yes. This is sovereignty in action. And so he says, I will go before you. Oh, interesting. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness. I'm going to do it. I'm the Lord and there is no other in verse five. Verse seven, I'm the Lord who does all these. Notice what he also says in verse seven. This is so important when it comes to sovereignty. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. You say, well, I would understand well-being. And especially some of these um, false teachers today that would tell you God is only God that's going to bring about well-being. Um, no, that's not true. You have limited God. I also create calamity. Tragedy. Is in my sovereign hand. The heartache that even Cyrus would cause. He's saying, God, it's in your sovereign hand to do it. Verse 12 and 18. He says, it is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hand and I ordained all their hosts. Every time you look into the heavens, you should look up and say, God did that. As man is seeking to discover more and more of his universe, it was simply a thought in the mind of God. I have ordained every planet, every galaxy. I simply spoke it into being. And I encourage people sometimes get outside of L.A., get away from the, um, the light pollution and go somewhere and look into the heavens and say, God, you are God. And then notice verse 18. What does he say here? Uh, for thus says the Lord God who created the heavens. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. 
We see the same thought. We won't go through it all. In verses 20 to 25, we serve a sovereign Savior. Stand in awe of him. Number five, why should we stand in awe of God? Let me tell you why we should stand in awe of God. Stand in awe of an obedient Savior. Look at Isaiah 50. Stand in awe of an obedient Savior. Notice verse 5. It says, the Lord has opened my ear. And I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. So here's a declaration of his obedience. Who's obedient? Now it's another anointed. It's another servant. It is the servant. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike me. And my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Notice his determination in verse 6, 7. For the Lord God helps me. Notice that word, helps. Hmm. Where have we seen it already? Who is the one who helps? That's right. Therefore, I'm not disgraced. I love this. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. These are beautiful words. And these are words we just shouldn't read easily. You should have images of a great God who ordained the heavens, who made all these things, who takes Cyrus the Persian by the hand and he punishes nations. But at the same time, he says, I allowed you to strike me. I allowed you to pluck out my beard. I allowed you to spit upon me. It's an amazing thing. You can't pause for a moment and stand in awe of that. How does the very creator of the universe, who has created all things, imagine this. I mean, and he not simply say, be gone. Imagine that they pull out his beard, which was a, a sign of, of disgrace. And he not simply say to him, your life I take from you. Well, he didn't do it because he came to give life. He came to offer his life as a ransom for many. He's an obedient savior. And he was obedient to the point of death. And of course, it fits with his purpose. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who has a cause against me? Let him draw near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? Behold, they will all wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them, but God will stand forever. Stand in awe. Number six, 
of a sacrificial savior. Look at Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52, 13. Wonderful passage, as we know. A sacrificial savior, he would give his life a ransom for many. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted, it says. And how does this passage end? 5312, notice what it says. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out himself to death. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. He is a sacrificial savior, and we must stand in awe of him. Language, really, there is a limitation in language to try to capture this truth. In between, behold, my servant will be high and lifted up, and now he is the one who is going to be, have a portion with the great. What words are in between? What words are in between? Marred, despised, forsaken, sorrows, not esteemed, smitten, afflicted, pierced, crushed, oppressed, cut off, grief. So between those two bookends of one who is going to be high and lifted up and the one who is the portion are all those words. And their words, and as much as one can translate them, still there's a limitation because words, there's always a meaning behind the word, is it not? That's why one, just in simple ideas, um, we can get a word and we can go to a lexicon and we can see variations of a word, can't we? And that's why, they say, for instance, there's certain words that I may speak to you in one language and another language, it means something very different. And there are some, some odd instances where in one language, a word is perfectly safe and another language is, oh my, don't ever say that again. Because it, it takes on something different. And so with marred, you say, what does that mean? With despised and forsaken and sorrow and smitten and afflicted and pierced and crushed and cut off. There's something behind the words. What's behind it? A sacrificial savior. And you should stand in awe of him. Number seven is this. Stand in awe of a gracious savior. A gracious savior. He is, in fact, that. And we're going to, in a moment, look at Isaiah 55. And what's interesting about it is the exiles are in Babylon and, and they're probably preoccupied with the issues of everyday life. And so God writes to them and he wants to let them know these things that you are preoccupied with, think about something greater, something that's more significant. And this would be true as well in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus Christ said what? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and these what? And these things shall be added to you. And what he's saying here to the people who are in exile, he's saying seek first the things that are most important. These other things are not. They are not. Say, so what, what do you mean things? Go with me to Isaiah 55. A beautiful demonstration of a gracious savior. Isaiah 55, he says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you will have money, uh, and you will have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. 
Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. So he say you're concerned about um, bread and water and wine and these things, but you should be seeking something that is beyond that. But what you need to see is this. Notice verse one. So very important. Ho. You say, why is that important? Small little word in the Hebrew language. But what's interesting about it is this. Leading up to this point, remember we talked about translation of words and and context is important. Up to this point, it's translated differently. Go with me to chapter 3. Chapter 3. And you're going to see why he is so gracious. Chapter 3. Remember, 1 to 39, God says there's been a breach in the covenant. Israel, you have breached the covenant. The nations have breached the covenant. There is going to come judgment upon you. So God pronounces woes. 3.9, woe to them, he says. 3.11, woe to the wicked, he says. Look at Isaiah 5. Isaiah 5 with me. Notice verse 8. What does it say there in verse 8? Woe to those who had house to house and joined field to field until there is no room. So it's a picture of like the, the man in the gospel who said, look at my all my barns. Let me build bigger barns and bigger barns. And what word comes to him? Don't you know today your soul will be required of you? Verse 18, 5. Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. 22, woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine. And this is what a picture here. And there's certain things that just haven't changed in time, have they not? Can't, Can't you just see guys at a bar, right? And they are valiant in drinking. And this is really what's being stated here. Six, five. Isaiah says, what? Woe to me, for I am ruined. And why did he consider himself ruined? Because he was standing in awe of God. He saw a God that was holy. We see it in chapter 10. Woe to Assyria. I'm going to judge you, Assyria. 24, we see woe. 29, woe. 30, woe. 31, woe to Egypt. I'm going to judge you. 33, woe to you. 45, woe. But then here... In 55, he says, ho. Why is that? Because we go from a woe, it says judgment is coming, and now translated here, which you would simply have here, with an exclamation point as you would see it in your translation. He said, now listen. Before it was a woe, now I'm waking you up to hear some truth. And it is this. You're striving for the things in life, but yet here is something that is far more important that you can eat without money and without cost? How is that possible? And why do you spend money on things that don't satisfy? Isn't this the human heart? The human heart spends its resources on things that don't ultimately satisfy. So the question is, how can we have bread and wine and milk? How can we have things that satisfy and not pay for it? Who can tell me? Because of what? Remember, he set his face like what? Flint. Because the servant paid for it. That's why. No cost to us, but great cost to him. 
And we see in Isaiah 57, turn there with me, another picture of God's awesomeness. We see his position. In verse 14, he says in 57, 14, there are obstacles that are in the way. Make a way for my people. Then we see his person. God is a holy God. He says, whose name is holy. We notice his presence, but notice his presence is what? So you would think if God is high and lifted up, surely he will have nothing to do with men, but he does. But there is a condition. Notice his presence. What is his presence? He says, I will be with uh, who? Contrite and lowly in spirit. His purpose in order to revive them. And what's the proposal that he's going to make here? He says, if you would just come to me, then you will be satisfied. Here's the eighth reason, the final reason to stand in awe of God. Stand in awe of a completing Savior. Look at me at Isaiah 65. 65. And then it stated, a new heavens and a new earth, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered or come to mind. I create Jerusalem for rejoicing. Verse 19, I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and of crying. No longer will there be an infant who lives but a few days. Why? Because I'm a God that's going to keep his promises. I'm a completing Savior. God will keep us until death, and he'll take us into the next life. A final thought for you is this. We should live our life in a constant awe of our Savior. I was away this week. Um, I mentioned to you, I went to a memorial service, Tom Leake, TMS graduate, faithful minister, planted a church in the, outside the Baltimore area. At times wanted to quit because he just thought in this area, no one wants the word of God. No one wants expository preaching, but he kept moving on. And, and the Lord grew it from four families. And, and at this, the height of it, um, probably 450 to almost 500 people there. Um, but um, interesting enough, in God's providence, six years ago, he goes in, has some pain here. Uh, they think it could be another condition, but they realize um, pancreas, pancreatic cancer. Yeah. And normally when that's discovered, it's already at stage four, but it was early. Um, six years. Six years. Um, he kept battling. He kept fighting, kept preaching. And you see, and as you were looking at the pictures of him at the memorial service, uh, I don't, my images of him aren't as dated as these pictures. I've not known him that long, but I thought, wow, I've never seen Tom like that. And his beard and he was, uh, uh, and his face was so full and you could just see life in him. And you saw the more recent pictures and, and he, Tom had lost so much weight and his suit was bagging on him, bless his heart. And he preached in that same baggy suit two weeks before he died. Two weeks before he died. 
And he so wanted to keep pastoring that church. And the Lord called him home. And there were many tears shed and many people talked about his life and how he lived. And it was consistent. And that's why I even mentioned in my little letter to you that when we come to the end of our life, I mean, live a life where people can speak of you honestly. I've been to memorial services and I hear the testimonies of people and, and I don't mean this to be funny, so let me preface it with that. It's just a true statement. It's a sobering statement. And I'm saying to myself, I don't know who they're talking about. That's not the person I knew. I mean, in a negative sense. And then it's embellishment, and, and you hear these things. But in his life, it was so consistent. And the question is, you know, his life is you saw him windling away. Would you bring him back to where he is now? No, no. He's with the living God. Because the living God completes what he starts. Amen. Because his Savior is alive and well. Yes, he died. He died a horrible death. A death that should cause you pause whenever you read passages that talk about his passion. But that Savior is alive. And so Tom is alive. And if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you die, you will be alive. But if you don't, it'll be everlasting separation from God. Instead of everlasting joy. Stand in awe of your God. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word you give us. And as we go to hear more of your word preached and about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I pray that it would attach itself to our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.